Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to this event in Antidote 2021. My name's Jacqueline Scully and I'm host for this afternoon's conversation. Before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the Camaragal people who are the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking, and to pay my respects to elders both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people who are watching this event online. Today's event is called Sound and Silence, Death Stories. And for today's event, we have an Auslan interpreter with us as well. One in six Australians have some kind of hearing loss and there are more than 30,000 Auslan using members of the signing deaf community in Australia. Deaf culture appears to be thriving, but to many hearing people, it's a very alien world. And more broadly in our social spaces and our environments, deafness and hearing difference is often overlooked. I'm Jackie Leach Scully. I am Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Disability Innovation Institute at the University of New South Wales. I've also been profoundly deaf since childhood and have been a deaf and disability activist for over 30 years. And with me to talk about our deaf stories are Fiona Murphy, who's an award-winning and prolific writer on deafness and other issues, and her memoir, the Shape of Sound was published earlier this year. And we also have Alex Jones, who's an actor, theatre director and deaf advocate and co-founder of AI Media. And he's currently a policy worker with the Disability Royal Commission. So to, to kick off, I wanted to say that all three of us have uh, a deaf story to tell. But we all three of us have very different deaf stories. We've had different journeys to get here. And I wanted to start by exploring that for a moment. So perhaps to start with um, Fiona, you, you wrote about your experience in, in your book. Would you, would you like to outline that for us a little more? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, really pertinent how um, you've set it up as everyone having their own death story because um, people have different experiences of deafness and hearing loss. And for a long time, I didn't recognise that to be true. I just assumed every other person with hearing loss um, had access to language, sign language and the deaf community. So for a long time, I didn't feel like I would be accepted because I was uh, born profoundly deaf in my left ear. And because I was put into a mainstream school uh, without access to sign language, and told that I wasn't deaf enough um, to need it. I truly believe that I just wasn't deaf enough at all. And I really um, started to conceal my hearing loss because I became so good at passing as hearing. If I was to disclose, people just didn't believe that I had um, any hearing loss whatsoever. So it really kind of undermined my uh, sense of identity. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that I started to question that. And that was really because I was starting to feel more and more fatigue and I was just continually becoming sick and unwell, burnt out, run down. 
And um, it was only when I started to meet other deaf people that I realised that there are so many complex and individual stories of deaf identity and um, coming into culture. So I really feel like I kind of came to age quite late when I um, had a sense of deaf gain and um, started to talk to deaf people rather than just hearing people about deafness, which uh, most medical professionals and audiologists are have completely intact hearing. Uh, so it's really being part of the community has just uh, given me a real sense of self. Does that some resonate with you, Alex? You're nodding, nodding there. Just listening to Fiona tell her story was just, yeah. Look, before we begin, I would like to... <clears throat> Well, I'll let you know why I was nodding so much um, after I just do this quick introduction, but I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders of this land and elders past, present and future. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal deaf elders, if I may, being their first language, their first Indigenous sign language prior to Auslan. And going back to me saying, yeah, I was nodding because there are so many deaf people out there later in life who are born deaf. And knowing there are so many deaf people out there who are actually born to a hearing family or a non-deaf family, which for me is a little bit different. I am one of those minorities within there because I come from a deaf family. My parents are deaf. I'm a third generation of deaf individuals. And what's odd about the identity that we speak of is that everybody's journey is different. For me growing up, my parents would tell people, see, this is Alex and he's deaf. And I would respond to my parents by saying, I'm not deaf. I'm hard of hearing. And the reason I would say that was because I wanted to be like my brothers who could hear. I've got three brothers and they are all hearing. So for me, I felt, who am I? Am I the same as my parents? I wanted to be more like my brothers. And so I found myself on the edge of my identity. It wasn't until I was 13 years old that in America is where I grew up over in the States. And it was when I went to a deaf high school, which was right next door to Gallaudet University. And at that time, there was a huge protest about deaf president now. And that moment in time was a real wake up call for me as a deaf person, knowing a deaf person, they wanted a deaf person to be the president. And it was at that time I changed, my identity became a capital D deaf person. So just a, a brief journey of mine right there for you, Jackie. A brief hey, journey of my identity. Yeah, thank you, both of you. Um, I said at the outset that I'm host of this conversation, but I'm also taking part in the conversation. So I can tell you a little bit about my journey, which um, was to be born as a hearing child. Um, I had meningitis when I was eight years old. And as you'll know, meningitis is one of the major reasons why children can lose some or all of their hearing. So after that, I was 
profoundly deaf. I have no hearing in my right ear and I have a, a little bit of hearing supported by a hearing aid in my left ear. But I did have the advantage, if you like, of having um, learned to speak while I was still able to hear. So I was never part of the naturally signing deaf community. I was brought up in a very oral community. And my parents, um, who had had no contact with deaf people before, were suddenly confronted with this deaf child. They really didn't know what to do. And you'll also remember that we you know we're looking way back um, half a century, 50 years. Um, in those days, it was very, very much um, that the, the, the oral culture was was promoted. My parents were told basically to keep me away from deaf children um, because I might pick up bad habits, I might lose my speech and so on, um, which they pretty much did. And I don't I don't blame them because they were following the advice they were given. But as I got older, I realized, I think uh, a little bit like you, Alex, and in other ways, you, Fiona, um, that I was not quite part of the hearing world, but I was not quite part of the deaf world either. Um, and to call me hard of hearing didn't quite work because a lot of hard of hearing people become hard of hearing later in life. So I didn't really fit in any of these categories. And I started to find out more about the deaf community and deaf culture. Um, and gradually my professional life as a bioethicist and my personal life as a deaf person and deaf activist began to converge. So now I'm at a point in my work where I also spend a lot of time working with, uh, in the disability world and with disability bioethics. So I think from that, you can tell we've all had some very different paths here and contrasting, but maybe overlapping um, experiences to, to at least some extent. Fiona, in your, your book, you talk a little bit about your, your fear of exposure as a deaf person. And you talked earlier uh, about not quite believing that you, that you were deaf. Did you feel a sense of um, isolation, exclusion, um, any sort of stigma attached with deaf deaf? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to really echo what you were saying about uh, not holding resentment against your parents because they were just following the prevailing medical advice. It was very similar in my upbringing where um, my parents were strongly discouraged from exposing me to uh, sign language because it was really, as they said, considered the last resort. And unfortunately, I think that message is still um, promoted by um, medical professionals that it may lead to some sort of um, delay in cognitive development or brain development in children who are deaf. So it was right from the get-go, deafness wasn't celebrated. It wasn't like a good news story for them to find out that I was deaf. I was diagnosed when I was uh, six years old and the diagnosis only came about because I was struggling to learn how to read or write I just didn't have the ability to connect letters and sounds. Sounds just didn't make sense to me, let alone letters. So I was falling further and further behind at school to the point where my teacher um, uh, suggested to my parents that I might have a learning disorder of some kind. 
So I had a huge amount of testing done and was subsequently diagnosed as being um, deaf. And I think all these factors kind of really converged in my mind that it was a burden, a nuisance. I was falling behind. I didn't belong in um, the normal classroom as such. And that only kind of um, became more and more prevalent as I uh, got older and started to kind of read more, watch more television and films. And deaf people are always portrayed as the butt of jokes. Um, it's quite humorous that they misunderstood or didn't hear something. So there wasn't really any deaf role models as such. There was, I had no sense of pride in my inability to hear. And why should I? I had never had an example of um, anyone who was capable and competent as a deaf person. And that only really came much later on when I started to engage with deaf people. To be honest, I was quite, because I was so afraid of um, rejection from the deaf community, I, um, it took me a long time to even get the courage once I recognised, yeah, I am deaf, but am I really deaf? So it's, it was quite a journey to kind of find any sense of acceptance. Alex, it sounds a bit as if your experience was almost the mirror image of that one, in that you grew up in an environment that was maybe a lot more positive about deafness. Yes, you're right. Yes. And no, I suppose. I think the older generation of deafness had an understanding that sign language shouldn't be seen in the public. So we would try and try and limit the amount of a vision or or sight of sign language because it was seen as a priv primitive language. And I had deaf peers, I had deaf friends, and also they came from a deaf family and their parents would also be out and about when they'd be out shopping in the late 70s, early 80s, they'd be like, don't sign, don't sign. People will pay attention to us, you'll draw attention to us. And that's the stigma, right? That's the stigma that was given to me and that was from deaf parents. Do not sign out in public. And so it's quite interesting because just in terms of society, seeing that signing equals negative, but sign language is so beautiful. Now let's talk about baby signs, right? Let's say for the last 10 years, baby signs, the amount of use and learning from uh, in terms of baby signs for hearing children is just amazing. And if you think about the plasticity in a baby's brain, they learn visual languages so quickly and they can pick up the visual language prior to a spoken language. But then on the other hand, when a deaf child is born and diagnosed, it's interesting society's view about the language. So a deaf person with deaf children, don't sign, we must speak, we must normalize. Why can't they do both? I've got some friends who are deaf and have only just realized their identity. And I think this has never happened to them before. And that's because community oppression, oppression and autism. I think the language, the grammatical structure, the syntax is beautiful. It has its own. Yeah, I think I can remember um, as a child, I never saw anybody signing. Um, 
occasionally we, in, in Britain where I grew up, we had uh, one television program for children called Vision On uh, that was used sign language. Um, but and 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 deaf and hearing children alike would watch it. So it's quite a good uh, way of integrating, I guess. But there were no other signed programs, and I certainly never saw anyone signing in public. And I had very little contact with deaf children, only in the audiology clinic. So it was very much a pathologized thing. You went to the clinic uh, to have new um, ear molds made, for example and there would be other kids around who were signing. But because I was um, I was a not a signing deaf child, I was almost deliberately kept well away from them, just in case, I guess there was a sense of contamination. You know, I might be contaminated somehow by, by these children. And then I remember a point in my, I guess, my mid twenties, when I began to see usually groups of younger people signing in public. And it was, I was overwhelmed. I knew what they were doing, but I, it suddenly occurred to me that this thing that was permissible, that you could do this in public and people wouldn't necessarily uh, laugh at you or punish you. They may well stare at you because I think a group of people signing is still an object or a subject of, of some curiosity in public, but not necessarily bad curiosity. And over time, you know, there's so much more that's being um, signed, interpreted as well as captioned uh, in public and, and on television. So I think it's become a little bit more normalised. Not completely, of course, there's still a little bit of, um, even the curiosity can be a bit about a freak show, I think. And that's a little bit, a little bit dangerous. But you talked there, Alex, about um, this sense of identity that um, you talked about your friends only recently um, realizing their identity or recognizing it. Um, and, and is that something that you felt you did very consciously to do with sign language perhaps? Well, Jackie, I think any person with a loss of their hearing, whether it be later in life and find the deaf community the signing deaf community is what I mean by community here. People would find it challenging, that sense of self. I'm different. I'm not like my hearing peers. But then when you find the deaf community, it's a whole new world. There's no sense of difference. I'm not an other. Audism as a term was coined. It's about how people felt a sense of prejudice when it came to hearing. In our world, our environment, it's very sound-based. For a deaf person, we don't rely on sound. We use augmented devices, augmentations to support hearing, but that's not a cure. When my friend I mentioned, who recently found the deaf community, just like Fiona did, found this whole new world found that these barriers were no longer there, that identity and how important it is for identity, for a sense of self pride. And that's something that was missing just, and it's, it's the role models for, for kids that are missing. There are some out there, but even today, I think we're quite privileged to have such 
openness, awareness and availability of sign language for emergencies, for the pandemic, for bushfires. There's this, it's visible now. And that's, that's, wow, so positive. And if you consider that prevalence now, there's been a 300% increase in people going in to learn Auslan, which is absolutely fantastic to see. And I also think it's about society understanding hearing loss, that it's not something to be fixed. You don't need to fix the ER. It's about access to language, access to communication. That's the message. I think one of the things I find very interesting about talking to all three of us and in other contexts too, is that there's a variety of deaf experience that's sometimes associated with how, uh, how much or how little actual hearing you have, but not, not always. And that you can have a variety of different experiences irrespective of your level of, of hearing. Um, I know we, I wanted us to, to talk a little bit about, you know, the deaf body, if you like, deaf embodiment. Um, but one thing I have been very conscious of in my life is uh, I've been married to uh, a musician for um, nearly 35 years now. So that's been a very interesting experience. She's a professional musician. Um, I go to all her concerts. I know that I don't hear everything that everybody else does. And I know that sometimes she talks about music in a way that I don't have the same access to. But I still, I know that I enjoy what I go to, unless it's a really bad concert, okay. But I, I know that I do enjoy what I go to. Um, but I enjoy it in a different way than hearing people. And I think that that's really interesting. That's something that most hearing people, I think, would find hard to hard to appreciate that there are different ways of enjoyment of the same things like sound, like music, like conversation, meeting people. Fiona, I know that in your book you talked about um, the, the change from the exhaustion and tiredness and strain of trying to follow conversations by hearing in, you know, in bars and restaurants and pubs and things to when you first started interacting with, with deaf people using sign. And it was di difficult in a different way, but also you didn't have that exhaustion of, of straining to hear the whole time. Is that something that you mean about the embodiment of being of deafness? Yeah, absolutely. Um... Generally, the general public or hearing people, which just on that note, I find it quite amusing that people with uh, complete hearing, um, they never like to call themselves hearing people. They almost get quite nervous or they're like, oh, I'm a non-deaf person. And even a few editors have pointed out, oh, isn't this a bit offensive to call people hearing people? And I'm like, is it offensive? You are a hearing person. Um, it's like calling someone deaf. That's not an insult. It's who they are. It's a proud identity. Um, so I'm really glad that we're all calling hearing people hearing people because it, it is what it is. <laughs> um, but in terms of the embodiment of deafness, um, for so long I thought deafness was just related to the ears. 
that's very much the experience I had when going to the audiologist. So to have my ears tested and it was all about the graphs and what I couldn't hear and my inabilities to do certain things. And they're all very mm. negative experiences. Um, I would often leave an audiologist exam and I still do with almost a sense of disappointment in myself because I have failed a test. So it took me a very long time and it was only really um, my professional career helped inform my understanding of the embodiment of deafness. So I'm a physiotherapist and I started when I was writing the book, I approached deafness from kind of a physiological perspective. And I started to um, gather together information of, that I had no idea was related to my deafness. So a frequency of headaches, muscle tension, uh, sweating, this heightened alertness, even how I, um, now that we live in quite a Zoom-based kind of environment, I often can see myself how I tilt my head to kind of accentuate my ability to hear. So all these postures that we do that are very much more than just our ears, but how we lean into conversations or we literally change a space so that our bodies fit, mm. so that we might go to the corners of a room so that we can kind of trap sound there and just be able to communicate clearly. And an example that I found of a deaf space designer in the book, he described having deafness is like walking backwards in the world, that we are alert, we are in tuned, and we are watching everything because we just can't detect everything. So if you want to, um, if you are a hearing person and if you want to kind of um, experience what it's like to be in a deaf body, try walking backwards. You will feel this sense of alertness which is often um, invigorating, but then it can tip over into an absolute exhaustion because if you are constantly alert all day long, you'll get to a point of just cognitive overload, which then kind of ties into the headaches, the fatigue, the withdrawal, the needing to find your own space and ability to um, rest and um, regenerate. So it's Deafness is much, much more than ears. Uh, we listen with our whole bodies. How about you, Alex? Are you finding the same sort of um, bodily difference, embodied difference about your identity? Oh, definitely, definitely. When you were saying earlier, Jackie, you're right. Deaf people are so varied and it really is. There's such a variation in hearing loss and the levels of hearing loss and that sense of space and our surroundings, it's almost like we're elevated in our senses. It's like the kinesthetics we have around us are more heightened. We know our space, we know of our surroundings. For example, going to a restaurant with their friends. Most of the time, I like to find a table right at the back close to a wall where we can see everything, then people can't come up behind us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and at work, what I've found is where I'm situated in my desk is there's a wall so I can see everything outbound and not wonder what's coming behind me. So I think deaf space is really critical. I think there's 
two types of deaf people that will be having a conversation with each other, right? They're signing and they're looking at each other and they're walking. What happens when there's a pole coming towards you? Will that deaf person bump into the pole? That natural intuit intuition that we have is to help each other as deaf people. And we manipulate the surroundings by doing so. That's deaf space. It's in there. It's, it's intuitive. We would then move and avoid certain objects and we support each other. And it's a two-way street. And that's what I'm ringing when we talk to deaf space. It's powerful. So intriguing. It's a different way of responding to our needs, I believe, in terms of embodiment of deafness and our communication. Work. I have meetings in the mornings because when it comes to lip reading and then Zoom meetings and even sign language, by the, by the time midday comes, afternoon comes, fatigue sets in. That lip reading, the eyes are strained, we're exhausted. That deaf embodiment, definitely. I've been thinking that um, in the pandemic situation where so many of us are um, operating maybe all day on, on Zoom or similar sorts of platforms, I'm wondering whether some hearing people are at least intuiting a little bit of what that is like, where, um, you know, the sound quality is not as good as they are used to in the everyday. Um, sometimes there's that gap between the, the delay between the vision and the sound, and that can be so disorienting. And I think many hearing people have never experienced that. But at the end of the day of maybe working on a glitchy internet connection where the picture keeps freezing, but the sound carries on or the other way around, they may know something of that, that tiredness and that, that sense of depletion that you get after a day spent, you know, lip reading, straining to follow what's going on. But I'm really interested in what both of you are saying about the manipulation of the environment as well as a way of um, living as a deaf person. And I think we tend to do it, it's intuitive, unless um, somebody really, really picks at you saying, why are you doing that? You don't fully consciously know why you've moved into the corner of the room uh, or why you instinctively have particular conversations in particular rooms because, the, because it's lighter um, or you avoid a restaurant because they always have mood lighting and that might be you know, really romantic, but it's pretty useless for communications for us. So you just want something with really bright lights, completely unromantic, unatmospheric, fluorescent lighting. Um, yeah. And that you won't have those conversations in really noisy environments um, or walking along in, in a street that's busy where you're constantly having to adjust where you're looking. Uh, they're just not the place to have conversations. So I think we're, we're also more comfortable in not engaging with our companions necessarily until we're in environments that work for us. There's some really interesting research um, that I found when writing my book of two main strategies that deaf people tend to use, where they either dominate the conversation so you go from one anecdote to the next, to the next, to the next, where nobody else can get a word in so that you know what's happening because you are controlling the situation. 
And um, I didn't realise that I used to do that quite frequently. Of I would just tell one story after the next, joke, 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 feel very comfortable. But as soon as you lose control of the conversation, then the other option is to retreat and then you pull back, which kind of um, is something that I used to do quite frequently in my early 20s of being out with friends in loud bars. I would just get to a point of absolute fatigue and then immediately exit and then not hardly even say goodbye to people. I would just be like, I can't even think properly. Because I think a lot of um, hearing people don't realise that deafness isn't just hearing words at a lower volume, but literally the integrity of words can fall apart. So it's very much like putting words through a sieve and we're catching Mm -hmm. just the vowels or if in other cases, depending on your hearing loss, you might just hear the consonants. So if you've only got sections of a word, it's just garbled. So you can't actually make sense of what somebody is saying. So if they yell at you, it actually makes it even more garbled because it's just emphasising the small parts of the words that we can hear. Um, So again, I go into the mode, am I going to control the situation or am I going to exit the situation? Um, And it really just depends how much energy I have to commit. Has that sort of thing changed for you at all during the pandemic? You know, other other than going online, for example, I, I f- am very dependent on lip reading in my daily life. And to be quite honest, I, I think everybody should be wearing masks at the moment, but I find it quite terrifying being in public now because it's um, it's virtually impossible for me to tell when somebody is speaking to me, let alone what they're saying, but just whether they're speaking to me at all or not. Um, whereas before, I could usually tell by by mouth movements that they were articulating something. Um, how does does that resonate with you at all, Fiona, or, or other aspects of pandemic measures? Absolutely. Um, as a healthcare worker, I don't have the option to ask people to remove masks. So. Um, All day, every day, I wear a mask and um, all my patients do as well. But it's having huge ramifications on my health mentally and physically. So it's really when I go home at night, if I am socialising, I've told most people I'll just text because I just can't um, continue to have conversations. Um, Yeah, it's difficult with masks and it's difficult to see when we won't be wearing masks as well. The one kind of silver lining, I suppose, is that there is a greater understanding from the general population, the hearing people, um, that many people rely on reading lips, not just people with a form of hearing loss, but whether they have tinnitus, for example, or whether they have... um, Uh, cognitive changes from dementia and they rely on facial cues to understand information or whether they have um, other health conditions where they need to have clear present communication. So I think masks are starting to show up um, that many, many people in the general population rely on seeing a face to communicate. Um, And without that, we're just going to have to help one another the best we can. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
um, Alex speaking, I want to add to two points that you mentioned in regards to the experience. For me, in the time of the pandemic, using Zoom was very exciting for me. It was a fantastic, it was a first, you know. I first started using Zoom in my workplace quite some time ago. And people who could hear were really taken aback and unsure about how that was able to work. But in a deaf community, we use that quite often, especially when it comes to online meetings. And I, being the more fluent user or competent user, would teach others, hearing others, how to use Zoom. But then over time, the challenges about Zoom being a 2D device doesn't always, doesn't have that same 3D effect when it comes to lip reading someone or then having interpreters. I would always have interpreters there to support me to manage the lip reading because lip reading in a 2D format is really difficult. When you're one-to-one face-to-face lip reading, you can see the movement, but on a flat screen, it's different. For me, when I'm out in the community, I get a lot of fear and anxiety. It sits there festering. And a lot of my friends feel the same. And going out and seeing people with masks on and asking them to please remove their masks, some people are open to doing so and some flat out refuse. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it is what it is. But for deaf people, that's that underlying unsettled and anxious feeling that we have to deal with and for now 10 weeks of full-time mask wearing every day that's another sense of barrier that's an accumulative sense and feel of isolation segregation i can't rely on the sound i can't hear i can't understand and that's every day and that does have a significant impact on one's mental health. I think that's yeah. really yeah. interesting what you're saying, Alex. Um, I didn't hear the, the term death anxiety until maybe my late 20s, early 30s. And as soon as I um, read the phrase and started to read more about death anxiety, I had sudden realisations of uh, what I considered to be personality traits as such. Um, that I like to be very regimented with my routine, to be scheduled, to kind of um, to feel a sense of unease when plans change suddenly or um, have to spontaneously meet up with people in certain situations. So this, what I always thought was um, a personality of wanting to be ordered and structured is really coping strategies to survive in a hearing world. And knowing that that... Um, death anxiety is a real thing that deaf people feel has helped me grapple with my mental health of recognising, yes, I am acutely alert and on edge in certain situations. So I can start to decide, all right, if I'm going into a hearing intensive environment, I'm going to get my rest beforehand and afterwards. So I'm trying to mitigate and avoid those burnouts. But in a pandemic, I feel like we're just being pushed continuously into this long, long burnout and there is no real time for rest at all, unfortunately. And a lot of it is about um, forward planning. 
I think there's always that anticipation, that's part of the anxiety, part of the, of the strain. What is the environment going to be like? Um, will this webinar have captions or subtitles? And that means that you're always, or interpretation, you're always having to get in touch with people before, before time. Um, I, I had the experience a couple of weeks ago of joining a, or wanting to join a webinar that was put on by, I won't say which one, but a public institution within Sydney, the public webinar, quite high profile. Um, and I spent most of the morning before it kicked off in communication with the institution, the person there, explaining to them how to make the closed captioning work on, on Zoom. Um, it was a perfectly friendly interaction, but I did feel I shouldn't be the person um, making the thing accessible. This is a public event. I shouldn't be have the responsibility making it accessible for other deaf people. And you know, similarly for people with different kinds of, of disability. But you know, I mean, I think we've been saying quite a bit about the stresses, the strains, the negative side of operating, not necessarily of being deaf, but being deaf in a hearing world, in an audit world as well. So what about deaf gain? What are the positives of this life? Uh, you know, we've already talked about the deaf community, um, but that's not the only thing, surely. Wow. Wow. I think for us there as deaf people, our, our augmentation, if you will, our devices can be removed. We can enjoy a peaceful life. We can stay near a busy road, near an airport and be oblivious. We can sleep late without being interrupted. That's a beauty right there. The use of sign language has its gains. You can see each other from afar through windows, in the car next door, scuba diving, you can sign underwater. There are so many deaf games out there. It's just amazing. And there are, there are so many more. Gosh, I can't think right now. Um, just thinking about, like you said, not focusing on what we don't have, but what we do have in life. I love music. I love loud sounds. I'm going to a concert soon. And I've been hounding the organisation and say, I want an interpreter to access this. And like you said, Jackie, you still have to advocate, but I'm there. I just want to get what I want. And we're proud of who we are. It's just making the wider community be more inclusive for all deaf and hard of hearing people. It's been interesting for me, as already, I've already mentioned, being with my partner for so long, who's a musician, Right at the start of our relationship, she said that the thing that frightened her most uh, as a musician was losing her hearing. So she found my presence, really, my being, um, very challenging. Um, obviously, we've worked something out over the years. Um, she's also been able to say more recently that um, she just finds the level of noise, a constant noise in the world, so exhausting and she's not able to shut it out. Um, and I certainly think, I, I find it hard to understand how hearing people can cope in a world where they can't shut things out. Uh, even walking down the street, you can switch off if you want to um, and, and cut out the noise of the, the leaf blowers and the 
construction work and uh, all the other classic Sydney sounds. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, before we end, about um, identity, because I think when you're outside the norm, whatever it is, in any way, then for many people that difference becomes the defining thing of your identity. You know, you're the deaf writer, the deaf actor, the deaf academic. There's usually just the one of you in that in that context. But, you know, identities are, are much more complex and, and overlapping than that. And they're a context in which being the deaf person isn't the most significant thing, you know, to do with our um, sexual identity, our partners, to do with our um, cultural background that sort of thing. Uh, there are contexts in which I'm very proud of my um, my father's uh, Indian heritage. And that's the thing which is most important for me, my um, my mixed race background. I'm very proud of that. And the, the deaf part of me is less relevant there. And in others, it's being a woman, in others, it's being a lesbian, you know, and academic and really bad swimmer. Um, what about what about for you? Well, uh, I think I can, I, I just, I think we have choices, don't we? We have choices. Sometimes there's a, it's great to promote. It's great promotional opportunities about deafness. There's a deaf musician, there's a deaf singer, you know, those are opportunities to have an impact. And you're right, Jackie, you're right. Those labels and identities like me as myself, I'm deaf, I'm gay, I'm a father. I'm, I have, there are so many layers to me, so many different, just it really, you know what? I'm still a father. I'm still a gay man and I'm a deaf man and I'm an actor and I'm a policy writer. And all of those things are me. They are all intersections of my identity. And it's about how you want to present yourself in any given situation. And you're right. There are some negative connotations in that space. Yes. Oh, 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 he's deaf. Oh, it's okay. He doesn't have to do that. But people need to consider the skills and the capabilities that we do have. You're a fantastic researcher. You're a fantastic academic. But it's not because of your deafness. Deafness is just another intersection. And it's an amazing thing. It can be a powerful thing. It does have its pros and it does have its cons. You're right. Uh, I definitely agree with both of you completely. But I find that um, I spent most of my life trying to build a non-deaf identity. Um, I really tried to be a hearing person and assimilate and I kept my deafness a secret. That now that I feel like I'm on the other side where I feel a sense of deaf gain. I'm just so excited to see how deafness cascades through all elements of my life that I thought were very discreet and could be um, harmful if people knew that I was deaf. Whereas now I see it as completely an asset. For instance, as a healthcare worker, um, a lot of people, um, particularly as a physiotherapist, there's a lot of um, physical attributes you must have to be allowed to even study physiotherapy. So you have to sign a waiver to say that you are physically fit, able and well to treat other people. And as a deaf person, that wasn't, I was really conscious of going, oh, am I lying? 
by saying, yes, I'm physically fit, capable and able to do this. So for a long time, that kind of made me keep my secret more. So I was thinking, oh, I'm just going to have to be the best I can be. And now I realize that my deafness is an asset because if one in six Australians have some form of hearing loss, one in six of my clients, patients more than likely will have hearing loss so that we can communicate clearly and well so that there isn't those barriers or miscommunications because I too have that experience. So I think it just enhances um, my ability to recognise and um, recognise miscommunications and ensure that they don't happen. But also as a writer, so I was very aware that my deafness meant that I had quite a lot of difficulties gaining any sense of literacy and I experienced language deprivation because I didn't have access to hearing technology or sign language. So even now my my writing is not always grammatically correct and without realising it, I skip out small words because I can't hear those words. So when I'm writing without realising it, I miss out single syllable words continuously all the time, even when I'm trying to focus. It's wild. Um, but that actually has created an interesting poetic effect in my writing because it isn't the same standard approach to language or English because I'm aware of where my um, where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are. So I, I'm constantly looking at language in a way of how can I invert it and twist it and make it interesting. And I think that's my deafness coming through time and time again, because in conversations, I'm constantly trying to gain an understanding and context of what someone's saying. So I think it makes me um, approach subjects and topics in the same way. Um, so I think my deafness, I'm, I'm excited that I've found a proud deaf identity. And I think it's just informing my life in positive, helpful ways. And I don't consider it to be a negative anymore. I think, honestly, it's like a superpower. I think <laughs> lovely. Possibly all of us have um, experienced that moment when somebody has asked you, yeah, but you you would you'd be cured though, wouldn't you? If you had the choice, you'd take the pill that would give you your hearing back. And oh, I find oh, it really yeah. it's there's that that sense of I don't quite know how to get across that. I'm just so used to this. This is my life. A little bit um, unlike you, Fiona. Um, it's sort of been my identity for so long. It just is. Um, if I'm sometimes if I'm asked, you know, wouldn't you have your hearing back? Wouldn't you be cured? I just say, oh, come on. Look, I'm too old. I've been like this for too long. I know how to run my life now. I don't want to change it. But it's more that it's just basically it is who you are. And there are different ways, I think, as we've been discovering of, of being who you are. I yes. like walking Jackie, backwards Jackie, in the world. Jackie, looking at, sorry, Fiona. Um, Jackie, looking at your bioethics and eugenics information, wow. Getting rid of other disabilities and disability genes and whatnot. For me, taking that blue pill to change who I am, why would I do that? God, there's such beautiful diversity in our community. There's beautiful individuals. And 
the beauty. That's the beauty of who we are. That's the beauty of society. We are diverse. If we removed all of that diversity, removed any of that colour, boring. That's not normal. Yeah. I think that is the key, and it, that's from our conversation too, that it's about not society not coming in with the presumption that there is one way of being normal, one way of being human, one way of being a, a, a good whatever you are or an excellent whatever you are. There are lots of different ways of, of doing it. Um, and I think that's the, that's the fight that we have really, of, is of saying, look, it's not that we're saying we're, we're better than you or that you're better than us. We are just different and we can find ways of occupying the same world and the same space creatively, I think, together. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's so important that there is more representation of people with disabilities um, in positions of power as well, just to kind of um, ensure that there are differences of views captured Otherwise, we won't get true accessibility. Often um, things are designed and planned, whether that's programs, buildings, spaces, uh, education programs, and then it's only uh, right at the end, accessibility is retrofitted. And then people get yeah. the impression that accessibility is difficult and expensive and ugly and um, really clunky. And of course it is if you do it at the end after all the decisions are made because it's just tacked on top. Um, so I think a, it really needs to change um, how things are designed and how we approach uh, differences in our society of accessibility needs to be there from the beginning in a design process and it needs to be there continuously throughout because it isn't a one size fits all by any shape of the imagination. Yes. And that's where the co-production comes into the picture, where we work together with disability, with deafness, all people, so that we can understand all needs and co-design, and then we can all work together and have the best for our environment. That's how it's going to be inclusive for all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not even about accessibility. It's just about creating the space, creating the world, creating the whatever. And it's taken for granted that everybody who is involved in this has a role in that creation. I think we may be coming close to time. So I'd just like to thank both of you so much, Alex and Fiona, for taking part in this conversation. The time's just flown by. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And, and I hope we, we may get thank to see you. each other ourselves. In, in the flesh, in reality, who knows, at some point in the future. Yes, yes indeed, thank you, thank you. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House.